All right, good evening. Good to see you guys. My name is Kerry Alderson. I'm one of the pastors here at Edgewater. Before we get started, um, I know it's brave of me to correct a couple of elders, but Dan, I think last week or the week before, um, corrected Matt, so I feel like I should say something. Um, I could be looking for a job tomorrow, but I don't know. So um, Dan said that Matt was wrong about something. Dan said that Breyer's ice cream is not the best. It's actually Haagen-Dazs. I say it's the Talenti Gelato, coconut or pistachio. So I don't want to start any ice cream wars, but we're going to be in Psalm 73 tonight. Before we start that, I want to show you guys, it's just a little one-minute video. Um, a couple of years ago, our nation was deeply divided by some racial things that were occurring. And a professional athlete by the name of LeBron James came into a press conference afterwards, and he was holding um, what some people were saying was just a prop. Um, he says it was a book that he was reading. It's the autobiography of Malcolm X. And somebody decided to press him on what he had discovered. This is the video clip of that interview. Uh, Taylor, you want to follow up? Yeah. Um, so you're holding the autobiography of Malcolm X along with Alex Haley. I don't know how far you are into the book, but what's your biggest takeaway so far? Um, I kind of just started a couple of days ago, um, but um, I've read a lot of a lot of notes over the years. Um, it's my first time actually reading this from start to finish. Um, but just a very um, very smart man, very 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 smart man, and basically. Um, his words in the in the sixties and uh, and what was going on is actually what's going on today. Still, wish I had an opportunity to meet him. Obviously, we know what, what, what the situation that happened among not only him but Dr. Martin Luther King, some of the greats that's ever walked this uh, face of the earth, not only just here in America but in uh, the face of the earth. So, uh, it's a pretty pretty interesting book so far. Did he read the book? He has not read the book, has he? He brought that in there to make a statement and somebody called him on it, right? All right. I feel sometimes I'm like, man, we as Christians, we pack this thing around. I hope we're reading it and I hope we know it. There's a Christian worship leader in our scripture tonight who is going to struggle with some things and come to a realization and we're going to talk about that. I have no beef with LeBron James. In fact, actually, I was a middle school and high school teacher, and 90% of the book reports, oral book reports I saw, were pretty much like that. How was the book? It's a very good book. It's a very smart man. Knew a lot of things. Wish I could have met him. In fact, we had a teacher one time at North. Uh, a student was supposed to read to, Killing Mo to Kill a Mockingbird, and she asked about the book. And the student said, man, that stupid bird just mocked, 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 mocked. <laughs> So, yeah, no pass. Father God, we thank you for your word. I pray that it would be dear to us. I pray that it would help us gain wisdom and insight into who you are and what you have for us as your kids. I pray that we would be blessed tonight as we consider who you are, what your word tells us, and what you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 73 is written by, um, like I said, a worship leader. His name is Asaph. He has written a lot of the Bible. Most of us don't know 
who he is really, but at a young age, David appointed him to kind of be over a lot of what we would consider a lot of the young musicians and a lot of the young worship leaders. At one point, David had him um, oversee and be in charge of the Ark of the Covenant as it was in transition and stuff. Um, He started young in ministry. He sees a lot of things happen. He sees a divided kingdom. He sees a temple built. He sees David rise to power. He sees uh, David fall. He sees David murder somebody. Um, He sees and witnesses Solomon's life. He sees the aftermath of what happens later on. He witnesses a lot of things throughout his life. And as we read through it, I want you to pay attention to kind of the flow of it. It starts off, God, me, and then as it goes through, it's them, 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 me, them, them. And then it closes pretty much like God, me, God, me. And we'll see what the result of that way of thinking is as we go through it. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We get a very honest, candid confession from a praise leader. If you're a Christian long enough, like Asaph, you will witness things that will cause your eyes to really not be able to comprehend what you're seeing. Really, he says, God is good, but I almost stumbled. He didn't, I almost stumbled, I almost slipped. Picture like an upward climb, slipping off of a stronghold. He didn't get pushed, he didn't get hit with something. His eyes, almost caused him to slip, what he was seeing, like vertigo. A couple summers ago, kids with a bunch of kids and teenagers, like always around with our kids and stuff, and they're all doing their backflips and their gainers, and I'm like, well, I can still do something like this. So I try to go do a gainer, and it is pathetic, and I end up back of my head first, down into the water, fine, swim out, embarrassed, lost my pride, whatever. That night, though, I got up to go to the bathroom, middle of the night. As I got out of bed, the whole room felt like it was spinning, and I went straight to the ground, and Selena's like, what is going on? What's, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, I'm really dizzy. Like, I can't, ever, the room is spinning. The little inner ear crystals that we find balance from had gotten dislodged, and I had to do what's called, I think it's called an Epley maneuver, which makes you even more dizzy, to get that kind of back into the inner ear. It's the same thing, um, I think it was Chad, or somebody says, now he has to take Dramamine when he, like, downhill skis, because, like, his eyes get thrown off. Or if you've been on a treadmill, and you're looking at something, and then you kind of have to catch your balance. Nothing has changed when I had vertigo from in the middle of the night, the room wasn't shaking. There's was no earthquake. When you're on the treadmill and your eyes, you lose sight with your eyes. Nothing around you has changed. Your eyes are tricking your brain and causing you to stumble. That's what we have here. It's often what will cause someone to doubt when you see something that you can't quite comprehend. A lot of people say doubt is, we try to like, over, like, value it, I guess you'd say. We try to make it seem more intellectual than what it is. I've been guilty of it before. Well, I kind of struggled with doubt before, you know, like I just, 
I, like we think about things that maybe other people don't. And so we kind of make it seem like it's something that comes from our mind, which in some cases it probably could. But what we also need to be aware of is that our sight, what we see, can give us spiritual vertigo. It doesn't always begin with our thoughts. Asaph says, my eyes saw something that I could not make sense of. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This couldn't have been the first time that he saw this. In fact, Paul confirms this way of thinking in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we walk by faith. We're not, not doubting. We walk by faith, not by sight. I'm not going by what I'm seeing around me. I'm walking by faith. I'm walking by what I know to be true. In spite of what I'm experiencing or seeing, I'm going by what I know to be true. The problem for Asaph is, in verse 14, we, it, we have a, kind of reveals a little bit. He's looking around, he sees everyone else and what's happening compared to himself. He's comparing it to his trouble that he is now going through. And in that, he starts to get kind of confused. He starts to doubt. But it's not just for Asaph. What we're going to see is it's not just confusion. It's not just doubt. There's also, there, there's kind of some envy. There's some fear. There's some judgment, anger, bitterness. There's some self-righteousness in it. So what does he see? I'm not going to read through all of verses 4 through 15. But he says, he, he makes an observation he says, the way that they look is different. They, the, the people that are against you, God, they're not following you. They're just living how they want. They look different. Their bodies look different. They're not in trouble. They're not stricken with anything. They have this, this pride that they wear around, this arrogance. Violence covers them like a garment. They scoff and speak with malice. Their mouths are against heavens, the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. And people find no fault in them. And they say, others say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? They also increase in riches. Verse 13, he says, man, in, in vain. It didn't even matter, Lord. I have kept my heart clean. And it hasn't even mattered to you. Verse 14 says, I've been stricken. Now we get to the root of it. He's experienced something that has been difficult. And it's causing him to doubt. Where's the justice? The world mocks and rejects. There's arrogant, deceitful people that are celebrated. We've all seen it. Sometimes there's Christians that are arrogant and living like there is no God. And they're celebrated and put on a pedestal. And he, he's just struggling with this. Spurgeon calls it, calls the prosperity of the wicked, he calls it, the golden stairway to the gallows. That's a scary thought. To be clear, what Asaph sees is not entirely accurate, and he's going to be corrected soon. Asaph's experience leads to doubt, which eventually gives way to overwhelming anxiety. Jump with me to verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task that translated... It says that he was actually physically sick, like physically ill, like with a migraine sick. Doubt, uncertainty, confusion, self-righteousness. We know all of those things bundled up are a recipe for anxiety. 
It is no different for us. We are a nervous, anxious people. We are. Maybe more than any other time in history, we are more anxious and nervous than any other time period in history. We have every comfort imaginable, and yet anxious and nervous. Depression, suicide, isolation, through the roof. Bitterness, fear. I saw a study, colleges are trying to figure out how to deal with the influx of social emotional support animals coming into college. When I was 18, I was excited for that stage of life. I had some nervousness, I had a little bit of anxiety. I did not need that. We had, when we first opened, we had a social emotional support animal right back in that area. It was some sort of dragon lizard about this long across somebody's shoulders, one service. If that's you, I'm not judging you, I'm just saying, we try to eliminate some of those insulation type things so that we can bring those anxieties before the throne of God and say, you take this from me. I, I don't need this, I need you. And I have no issue with any of that stuff. People gotta do what they gotta do. But don't let those things come in the way of God doing his work. My wife is a middle school counselor and she was recently just asked to be on a, on a small group of counselors for the State Board of Education and their primary goal is, one of their primary goals is to help kids figure out how to hang, handle their anxiety. Coming out of the last two years, everything has just been compounded. Um, we're the first generation that has nonstop 24-hour news, onslaught of social media, constant stream of information, in fact, I debated putting a chart up here. There's no reason to. There's an exact direct correlation between time on your phone and depression and time on social media and depression. Like the chart just goes straight up. Like there's, I mean, you can just picture it. Boom, straight up. You're on your phone a lot, more depressed. You're on social media a lot, more depressed. We all know it and we all can't get away from it. The constant message, you should be scared, you should be fearful, you should be bitter, you should be frustrated, you should be outraged, you, you might be oppressed, you should be oppressed. There's a book called The War Against Boys. I highly recommend it, highly, highly, highly recommend it. I read it years ago, I'm reading it again. This person, she's not a Christian, she says, the push for getting in touch with your feelings and your emotions and the, and the constant push and bombardment of that is creating for boys, like, boys, you gotta talk about your feelings, you gotta open up, you gotta, you know, constantly putting that pressure on them. It not only has backfired, it, it, it's created obesity, it's created depression, higher suicide rates, less success, less college, less getting out and getting a job, less kid, you guys know kids delaying getting their driver's license. But not only that, she said what this is doing is this constant push of your feelings. It's creating anxious, fearful little girls. Didn't expect to see that. Matt taught a couple weeks ago, I think it was not this Sunday, but the Sunday before. If you wanna dive deeper into this felt needs versus truth, talk some about that. We push this victimization on people, people looking for reasons to be anxious. In fact, actually, victimization sometimes is, is, like we hear about it so much and there's so much oppression or whatever. It, sometimes it's hard to figure out, like, is that real? Like, should we do something about that? Or 
Is it not? Now, other times, it's painfully clear. We hear the stories. Man, they just bring you pain and compassion, and then you get angry at the enemy. You get angry that, that some of this false victimization is actually taking from these people that need help. Some of our anxiousness is more subtle. Some of it is self-inflicted. We have anxiousness for stuff. Like, I don't know about you guys, but we have stuff. At our house, you guys have stuff at your house? Like, we have a lot of stuff. We have stuff in the house. We, we pull stuff out. Some stuff is for some seasons, and then there's stuff that you use for other seasons. Like, it's this season, so I need this stuff, and then the other stuff goes away during that season, and then we bring out some more stuff. Sometimes we have so much stuff. Like, we have to go through and rearrange our stuff, and we take our stuff out, and we put it in the driveway. I have to take all of the stuff, and I put all the stuff together with other stuff in the back of my truck. And I drive it to this place, and when I get there, there's a whole bunch of other guys lined up. They have trucks with stuff in it. Some of, some of these guys have trucks full of stuff, and then they have trailers full of stuff. And I show up, and there's a guy that comes and looks at my stuff. And he's like, this stuff causing you some anxiety? Yeah, it is. He's like, I can do something about that. You can? If you pay me, I will take your stuff and you will never see it again. That's awesome. Please do that for me. Please take my stuff. Well, our rates have gone up, so it's gonna cost you a little bit more, but I will take it for you. And then me and the other guys, we back our trucks up, we dump all of our stuff in in this big metal thing and everybody puts all their stuff in there and then they drive our stuff away so we don't see it anymore. Then I wash my truck, I come home, and I get home, and then what's cool is my daughter can pull this out and she can order more stuff that will be brought to my front door. <laughs> There'll be boxes of stuff on my front door that I'm gonna pay for and then I'm gonna pay somebody else to take it for me so I will never see it again. And it's just this anxiety cycle of stuff. Constant, constant stuff. Some of us get wrapped up in really things that are supposed to be good, but like sports, and I was just talking with a, a family out there, like, man, we're super busy right now. We got practice and practice and practice and practice and practice, and I coached for a long time. Before I had kids, I coached. I coached my kids as teams. I've coached from kindergarten through high school seniors, varsity, whatever. I've done a lot of coaching, and I, I think it's great to have kids doing that stuff. But sometimes we have to just, it's getting a little wild. We gotta push pause. We gotta bring the anxiety level down. Investments, politics, homes, anxiety, anxiety. Remodeling your home, we feel like we've been on a 10-year remodel. Our remodel is gonna take longer than Pastor Mark's remodel took. Anxiety, anxiety. Social media, more anxiety, self-inflicted, constant comparisons. It, here's the thing about like social media. It causes people anxiety it's so much so that you will have moms go on. I've seen this before. Moms, don't worry. Don't compare yourself to others. I know it looks like everything, but we're all dealing with stuff. And like you see how much anxiety it will cause people. And, and some people will like complain to you. Like, I don't know why they're posting this. Why did they post that? Why? We had somebody complaining that Selena, my wife, was posting too much scripture. All you ever post is scripture. But really? Like, why do you care? Like, just... Delete, unfollow, block, get off, put your phone away. Why do you care? Like, it, it should not even matter. Sometimes, though, I will say, side note, comparison, 
can be a good thing. I mean, if you're a 24-year-old and you're scrolling and you're like, whoa, there's somebody that I graduated with and they've got a job and they're working and they've got their own house and they're doing... Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should get a job. Maybe I should get... Yes, you should. That's a good thing. That is a good comparison. Some people get tired of seeing the uh, workout videos on social media. They complain about that. causes people anxiety. Sitting in your car, you're like, man, another workout video. We're always talking about nutrition. Why do they always have to post a picture of themselves in a tank top? And then you get a tap on the window, and you roll down the window, and the person says, welcome to In-N-Out. May I take your order? That's a good time for you to say, this is a good, healthy comparison. Seriously, though, I understand there is some serious anxiety. There are some serious pains. There are some serious hurts. There's some serious suffering. There's serious injustice. Far and away, you ask any pastor on staff, the hardest part of our job is to sit in a room with somebody who is sharing some pain that they have been through. I feel like I have the, I'm the luckiest person in the world. I, I get to, I'm so blessed to get to do what I get to do. But if there is one thing that ever makes me want to run for ministry, it's the, sometimes the onslaught of sitting and listening to the injustices or the suffering that people have been through, kids and families and marriages. You're like, man, I just, I don't, uh, I don't know if I can take it anymore. So what do we do with this anxiety? What do we do with it? We know Philippians 4, 6 is very explicit in our instructions of how to deal with our anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Talk to God. Bring it before God. And listen, when we bring these things to God, it's not for God. God knows what's going on. He knows. It's for us. I I picture like, Um, when our kids were babies and they were laying in the crib and you've probably experienced this at some point or another and you're just listening to the baby monitor and they're just kind of cooing and talking and they're just kind of soothing themselves and eventually they go to sleep. I I feel like in a perfect world, that's kind of how our conversation goes with with God. In, In our prayer life, it's, man, I'm just talking this through with you and I'm trying to give myself some peace. I'm trying to bring my anxiety level down. Other times it's like, when your baby was going to sleep, just throwing a fit and freaking out and crying. I remember our kids would cry so hard, they'd be sweaty and just, you'd go in the next day and their hair was a mess and the crib was a mess and the blankets were all over and they just looked all disheveled. And I think sometimes our, our life might feel like that sometimes. Like we're just constantly crying and complaining to God instead of just like, God, I trust you. Like, take this for me. But what is the specific remedy for ASAP's anxiety? He says in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It made him sick. Verse 17, the remedy. Until, until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. When I went to the sanctuary of God. What does sanctuary mean? What do you think of when you think of sanctuary? What do you guys think of? Anybody? Church, somebody said church, I, a safe place. Yeah, I kind of think of like peace, like that for me. 
as I was looking into this word, I was like, well, you know, what is the exact specific word of this? What does that actually mean? The sanctuary that's referred to here is the holy place or the holiness of God. In his anxiety, what brought Asaph back was being confronted with the holiness of God, how holy God was. It's where he found truth. He said, it was then I was able to discern their end. I realized who you are, God. I realized who you are. I realized who I am. I was humbled and encouraged. I personally was the people that Asaph would have been mad about. I wasn't like the worst person in the world, but I mean, I was having a good time doing what I want, didn't care, laughing, laughing about it. I personally am so thankful that God is patient and long-suffering. Asaph says, in the sanctuary, it was the holiness of God, the truth hit me. That's when it hit me, that you are king and that you know and you are righteous and you are just. And for us, it should hit us that no matter what, King Jesus sits on the throne. No matter what, people can say and do what they want. King Jesus sits on the throne. They can post what they want. King Jesus sits on the throne. The condition of the world, culture, his people, his church does not change who he is or what he did. Amen? Jesus is Lord and Savior, period. He was there at the beginning. He will be there at the end. He came, he suffered, he died, he rose again. He lives for us. He is supreme. He rules and reigns. I think sometimes our language in like a desperate effort for us to bring God closer to us, we even minimize kind of just with our words who he is to bring him closer. Now listen, I know scripture says Abraham was a friend of God. Scripture says Jesus was friend of sinners. Of course, I like that. But I think I liked it. I think I like it because it doesn't sound very threatening. It doesn't make God feel very intimidating to me. I remember like 20 years ago, there was a t-shirt. It said, Jesus is my homeboy. I may have even had it, I don't know. What an absolute affront to the king of the world. Jesus is not my homeboy. Even well-intended language, I think, sometimes minimizes who he is. We will say, they decided to make Jesus their Lord and Savior. No. Jesus is their Lord and Savior, period. He was their Lord and Savior before. He was their Lord and Savior during. He is their Lord and Savior after. They, them, you, me, we, we had nothing to do with it. We will say, I decided to make Jesus king or Lord of my life. And I get, I get what we're saying. I get it. What, what a better phrase might be is that we have acknowledged that Jesus is savior and king. Because our wording, our decision-making had nothing to do with who he is. Whether we choose to follow him or not does not change that Jesus is king. And some of you are saying, I feel like you're kind of belaboring this. You're kind of going on. I get it. I get it. Listen, it's critically important for us. If we're talking about doubt and we're talking about anxiety and we're talking about what's going on around us, we have to understand it. It's foundational. There is nothing, anything, anyone can do to change who Jesus is. I don't care what people say. I don't care the, the future church, what it says. King Jesus is who he said he was. So we need to tell our eyes it doesn't matter what we see. Tell our feelings it doesn't matter what we feel. Tell our fear it doesn't matter. The world does not decide. So listen, this is what healed Asaph was the truth of who God is. Colossians 1.16 says, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. That is Jesus. So, so literally, Jesus held the fist together that punched him in the face. And Jesus held the whip together that, that whipped him in the back. And Jesus held the hammer together and Jesus held the nails together that drove through his hand to the cross. Jesus held it all together. Jesus had some anxiety about it. And yet Jesus went through with the plan willingly. The truth is, Jesus is holy and just and simultaneously merciful and long-suffering and gracious. That is hard to wrap my head around. Asaph admits in all of this, I was kind of being a baby. Listen, I was really focused on myself. He says in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. Lord, I was like a beast to you. I was so selfish. It was all about me. Self-care, take care of yourself. Self-awareness, self-identity, self, 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 self. That wasn't what healed him. Asaph had to get his eyes on the Lord. Asaph says, it was the sanctuary. I saw you as holy and just. You will judge the wicked. I realized I was a brutish, ignorant beast towards you. Psalm 73, 23, he continues and he says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. He says, I realize this, and you took my hand. I came near to God. I saw he was holy. I saw that I was small, that I was sinful, that I was selfish, and yet still you took my hand, and you, God, you guided me. The great surprise of the universe is not that people go to hell. It's that people go to heaven. That's what's amazing. Asaph says, even when I was a beast, you were good. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. Even when I fill in the blank, you were good, God. You held my hand. You led me. God, even when I fill in the blank, you were good. You held my hand. You led me. Our Father in heaven is good and gracious and merciful. He is a loving Father who is also righteous and just. He is all that at the same time. So the question for, for all of us probably is, so how do we keep ourselves from experiencing this vertigo, this slipping, this doubting, this anxiety? Come to the sanctuary. Come before God and see how holy he is. Well, you know, I would like to do that, but sometimes my anxiety or my doubt prevents me from doing that. You should still come. You should still come. Otherwise, it's not a fair fight. Because the world is a constant bombardment that wants to sell you fear and doubt and anxiety in a godless culture wherever you go 24-7. It's not a fair fight if you don't bring this stuff before a loving, righteous, just God. Put the world under the same doubt and scrutiny and microscope that the world wants to put God under. Make the devil as anxious as he's made us. Come to God to doubt the ways of the wicked. Come in here to doubt what the world is selling us. Here's why. Verse 23 is, it's awesome. 
He says, you held my right hand, you guide me. It wasn't just the justice that healed Asaph. It wasn't reason. It wasn't explanation. It wasn't some resolution. God wasn't concerned with those things. It was a relationship. Take my hand. Let me guide you. Asaph finds truth, forgiveness, acceptance. He finds his hand, he finds direction, and in it he gains peace and hope. No more bitterness, no more doubt. God cares very little about resolution. He's he's primarily after a relationship with us. Asaph found security and peace and hope and direction in a relationship with the Father. Some of you are newer Christians, and you see, I hear people talk about that, that it's about a relationship, and I don't totally understand what you're talking about. I understand that that might be kind of confusing. The simplest way I can describe it is to spend time with God. Spend time with him, knowing who he is. Know who you are in light of who he is. Be honest with him. Trust him. Follow him when you don't want to follow him. Be in your word. Be in prayer. Come to church. Come on Wednesdays and Sundays. Spurgeon said, a faith that doesn't get you to church probably won't get you into heaven. It's pretty harsh. Anxiety comes when we try to trust ourselves. Peace comes when we trust God. Anxiety comes when we try to trust our ways. It was some self-righteousness that Asaph also had mixed in there, that he was kind of trying to trust his own way. And it led to this fear and anxiety. And then the peace comes from trusting God. For me personally, before I was raised Catholic, I knew there was a just God. And I knew there was a lot of things I could say or supposedly do that might appease him. But none of that comforted me. I never found comfort in saying a prayer a certain amount of times. I still had this doubt and anxiety that I struggled with. And now we know each other. And I'm in awe of who he is. And I'm thankful for who he is. I'm thankful for what he has done in my life. I have security in that. No one, there's, there's, no one in the world that has anything that, that I desire or want. I mean, if I, I get my eyes off of him, I'm like, wow, that's a nice house or that's a nice car. Well, you know, but like mostly in my time spent with him, I'm so content. I'm so thankful. All I can do is praise him for the family I have and the job I have and the friends I have and this community and this church. I'm so connected that I don't have time to do what Asaph did. That's a relationship with Jesus. Our anxiety comes when we take our eyes off him. We recently got a dog, so we haven't had a dog since our kids kind of started to get older. Our dogs died, and we're like, okay, we're too crazy busy with the other animals. But we just got a puppy, German Shepherd. If you have a German Shepherd or you know anything about German Shepherds, you know they require a lot. We named her Ray after Star Wars. Um, She's great. But one thing my wife and daughter are trying to teach Ray is when there's a bunch of chaos going on around her and they're using little dog treats or whatever, they're saying, look at me, look at me. And sometimes it's hard for her to do, but she's getting it a little bit better. And then it settles her down. Look at me, look at me, Ray, look at me. And then the treat and then the eyes. And 
Our eyes need to be fixed on God. Asaph wants a resolution. God says, I want your eyes on me. I want a relationship with you. But God, I want you to fix this job. I want you to fix this health thing. I want you to fix this question. I want you to answer this. God says, listen, you're being a beast toward me, but come into the sanctuary. Take my hand. I want to walk with you. Any of you guys know who Joni Erickson Tata is? Author, speaker. 17, she was in an accident. For 55 years, she's been paralyzed. She said, one day, we will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry and how beautifully God embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and for his glory. It's beautifully put into perspective no matter what is going on. Asaph takes God's hand, God leads him, God gives him mission and purpose. And then we get to live that out before an unbelieving world. Here's what I would love to see. We as Christians, as the church, living in such a way that the unbelieving world is like Asaph. When, when my eyes saw how the church was living, it caused me to question this. When my eyes saw how the believers trusted in God, it caused me to question what the world was selling me. It caused me to slip, it caused me to doubt. It caused me to have some anxiety about living this way. I would love to see those who would be the evildoers question where they're at. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. We said at the beginning, he started off, it was God and me. And he praised God for how holy he was. And then it was them, 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 me, them, me, them, 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 them. Self-righteousness, doubt, anxiety in that observation. And then he closes, God and me, God and me, God, me. And he finds truth and he finds peace and he finds hope. Asaph brought his doubts, his complaints, his fear, his anxiety before a holy, just, righteous God. And he found him to be loving. He found truth. He found peace and he found hope. Let's pray. Father God, no matter where we're at, we will see things that will cause us to question, that may cause us to trip or stumble, get dizzy, experience vertigo, to wonder, I pray that we would be reminded in a moment that you are a just, righteous, powerful God who reaches out his hand and takes ours when we are a brutish, questioning, ungrateful beast 
you lovingly, lovingly reach out and you take us by the hand and you lead us. I pray that's how we would know you as our Father. All-powerful, yet gracious and loving and really desiring relationship with us, your kids. Anyone here tonight who has been struggling with any type of anxiety or doubt or fear, I pray an overwhelming sense of peace would come over them. Regardless of the condition or circumstances, whether they change or not, I pray that there would be a peace. There would be a trust in you. If we believe that you are who you said you are and you did what you said you would do, I pray that that's where our trust would be and our faith would be and you would give us peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.